So about 20 years ago, no, not about, at this time, 20 years ago, we had in the field in a county, rural county, upstate New York, the first comprehensive study of food security, household food security. We had access to a health census that was done in the county and, and therefore could take a random sample and be able to oversample people who were in low-income households that likely to be at high risk of food security. And among the things that we measured was um, body mass index on women. And so here are the data from that. Um, so this is mother's BMI. There was 193 in the sample. And we had a measure of food, food insecurity that you can see listed there in three categories where food insecurity is affecting the household, food supply affecting adults, and more severe affecting children. And what you can see I've highlighted in red that um, women, women who are in the household food insecure group, so the, the mildest form of food insecurity, had a higher BMI by two BMI units. So that's about five kilograms. So that's a, a fairly large amount. And also there was evidence, this number is negative but not significant, but if you looked at the odds of being obese, that the odds of being obese were about four times less if you were in a household that was much more severe in terms of food insecurity where there were manifestations of child hunger. These are the first data that we have relating food insecurity and obesity. Although uh, in 1974, the earliest mention I know of is someone wrote an editorial uh, commentary in the American Journal of Public Health worried at that point about food insecurity and obesity, and particularly about the food stamp program promoting obesity, even though the food stamp program at that point was only a few years old and had only recently gone national. There were no data to support this concern, but nevertheless, the concern's been around for quite a while. So since then, there's been many, many studies looking at this relationship between, between food insecurity, uh, poverty more broadly, but food insecurity in particular and, and obesity. There, and there's been four reviews that I'm aware of. Uh, one is the Institute of Medicine held a workshop in the fall of uh, 2010 that uh, was at the request of USDA to look at this issue. I'll, I'll refer back to that, to that later. There was um, a review by Larson and Story, uh, by Eisman, and then one by Franklin, all in the last uh, couple of years. So what's been found in these reviews? So this is a summary of, uh, that food insecurity and obesity are positively associated in women, but not in men, um, tend not to be so much associated in, in children. There's mixed results for children in the second bullet, but some evidence of an association in adolescence. There's few studies that report a linear relationship. So like the study I first showed, there seems to be a nonlinear relationship, if there's a relationship. And that modifiers are important. And some of the modifiers that have been talked about in the literature are gender, marital status, uh, st uh, stressors of various kinds, and also participation in food assistance programs. In those reviews, there was also discussion of methodological concerns and needs, and in particular they highlighted the need for longitudinal studies, and some of those reviews said explicitly, no more cross-sectional studies, we don't need any more of those. Uh, we'll again come back to that later. To, uh, urge the development of tools to distinguish between acute and chronic food insecurity, because the way in which we assess food insecurity in the United States, for example, is to ask for a report about has something happened in the last year. Well, that doesn't tell you anything about how persistent that is. 
and we have some longitudinal studies that tell us a little bit about that, but we don't really have a good way of capturing that. And uh, although the USDA has been really remarkably effective in including a food insecurity measurement tool in national surveys, there's been less incorporation in regional and, and local studies. The literature also had uh, points to, to be made about, about mechanisms, um, and I've quoted some of these, the ones I think in the recent literature that are most important. The first one is, uh, talked about that obesity arises from the physical expression of vulnerabilities that arise in turn from the intersection of gender, child care expectations, and poverty. So that's a, a mouthful. But what they're talking about is that the reason why one gets obesity in the face of food insecurity is because families are vulnerable, in particular women are vulnerable, they're, they have roles in child care, they're coping with poverty, and then that, that's the explanation. It's a very nice study, a qualitative study in social science and medicine. There's another paper by Lynn recently that talked about, found evidence of the, the deprivation and restrictions in food choice that are associated with poverty uh, enhance food reinforcement and thereby increase the risk of obesity. So there's reinforcement about consuming food, and that leads to a psychological mechanism, behaviors leading to obesity. And the third one, um, the concern about, this is almost ironic, that people's worry about, concern about future overweight paired with controlling feeding styles is a mechanism through which food insecurity might be related to obesity. The literature um, also has some reports on effect modification in the recent literature. One of them was, uh, was um, this study in, I believe, the Boston area that, that looked at children of underweight or overweight or obese mothers. So in other words, children of mothers who are not in the normal range um, had greater odds of being obese uh, when, when in the face of persistent household food insecurity compared to those that were not. So there's an interaction, in other words, with the mother's obesity status that, um, that relates to children. Uh, food assistance program participation was associated with increased body size in food insecure youth, but not food secure youth. And the third one is that an increase in, in maternal stressors amplified the likelihood that food insecure adolescents would be obese or overweight. So in other words, maternal stress had an effect on the likelihood that children would end up obese in the face of food insecurity. And then finally, I wanted to highlight this study, this important study by Leroy et al., uh, just published recently, that used a randomized design. This is the only randomized design we have looking at probably any of these issues, where there's a cash and in-kind transfer program in rural Mexico. Uh, there were three arms, a control and then a cash group and an in-kind group that gave food. And they found that the cash and in-kind transfer program significantly increased household energy consumption, even though the households were not energy deficient at, ba at baseline. So the households were energy sufficient, but giving them more resources for food resulted in, in uh, greater energy consumption. And then the, second, the, the next bullet is that the program significantly increased women's weight, about half a kilogram over two years, even though 60% of the women were already overweight or obese at baseline. And that the biggest differences were with the baseline BMI. So women who were, uh, had normal BMI and the normal BMI range had no increase when they were receiving this assistance. Women who were already obese gained on average about a kilogram during this time over the two years. So 
a kilogram to, 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 uh, uh, half to, to one kilogram is not a huge amount over a two-year period, but if one imagined this being cumulative, then, it's, then one could see that there could be a, a contribution. All right, so that's what the literature has to tell us. And so what I'd like to discuss now is a way forward in trying to understand how we can build research that's going to be useful relative to the kinds of questions that policymakers are asking, as Angela referred to. So one of the perspectives we can take or orientations is to use life course theory. Life course theory asks about what happens during one moment in life and how that influences what happens later. It emphasizes life transitions, trajectories of actions, and the timing of life events in relation to changes that have occurred in the past, but also uh, in, in the present context. So here's a picture. Christine's very familiar with this. Um, this has to do with a model of food choice, but I like the picture. And what it shows is that as you meander through your life, um, from past on the left to present, that uh, along the way there's various forces that can impact what happens during those transitions, including your upbringing, roles, health, ethnic traditions, resources, locations, the food systems, and other things that we could, we could think about. So here's an example of some recent work that we've done that's tried to take a little bit of a life course perspective, um, in, in, a, in a limited way at least. This is some work that Mike Burke did when, when he was here that's been, has been submitted. Mike's now up in, in Washington. And we wanted to use the early childhood longitudinal study, the kindergarten cohort that started in, as you can see, fall 1998, uh, and then followed children from, from kindergarten up to eighth grade. And... What you can see in this picture is a comparison between those that are food secure and those that are food insecure in terms of their body mass index. And the, well, the first thing you notice is the lines are really close together. All right? But the other thing that you can see is that there's a crossover. So that at kindergarten, children who are food insecure have lower BMI. But by the time they get up to eighth grade, the red line is on top. So it's reversed. So that food insecurity at eighth grade is related to a higher BMI. So depending upon where you look in this limited snapshot of the life course, you're going to get a different answer if you were to look cross-sectionally about what the relationship is. The effects are small, but we think this is important because we think that this trajectory projected into the future if the lines continue to widen, then that's potentially part of the explanation. So what else do we know about these issues re from a life course perspective? As far as I know, there's no other study that's looked at it from relating food insecurity in particular and, and overweight and obesity from a life course perspective. But there is some work that's been done uh, re related to poverty, and I think that's instructive. So this study by Lee... Um, uh, looked at poverty, also measured as welfare receipt in childhood, and whether or not that was associated with adult obesity. And they found that it was associated with adult obesity for females, but not for males. Uh, the second bullet that is that other measures of socioeconomic disadvantage, such as, for example, neighborhood poverty, parental education, were associated with obesity in both. So there's something about poverty that that is differentiating and is operating in a different way between men and women that's not seen for other measures of social disadvantage. And they uh, cited evidence that they had 
that poverty may exert this effect on female obesity because it's mediated through physical activity, inadequate sleep, skipping breakfast, and certain forms of parental monitoring, consistent with one of the other studies that I, I just talked about, and that race and ethnicity were an important confounder of poverty's influence. So you, in other words, you got somewhat different things going on depending upon that. There's a few other studies that have been done from a life course perspective that have looked at poverty and self-reported health, mental health, and chronic, chronic disease. But this is the only one I could find that was looking specifically um, at poverty and, and overweight status. There's been some work done uh, on life course perspectives related to physical activity. Uh, Jennifer O'Neill uh, helped compile this for me, so I appreciate that. Um, and so three of the studies that I think are most relevant to, to our discussion here are that early physical activity promotes lower prevalence of chronic diseases in adulthood. So we know that childhood physical activity is related to later chronic disease risk, that BMI, but not physical activity itself, tracked well over 22 years from uh, child to adult, so that, so that um, early BMI trajectories tended to persist, but physical activity trajectories didn't. And the third one is that childhood physical fitness, not activity, but fitness per se, was inversely associated with obesity in early adulthood. But then those effects, they were followed into middle age, and those effects sort of attenuated over time. Now, another theory that's, that's relevant to us that builds on, on life course theory is cumulative inequality theory, which says that, that advantage that's established in early life not just persists over time, but it results in greater accumulation of opportunities and resources that put an already advantaged person in a better position to delay the onset of illness. So it's the idea that early advantage, or the converse disadvantage, affects not only what trajectory you're on, but presents more and more opportunities, affects the opportunities you have that in turn will then affect what happens to you. So from this, we would expect that health disparities between advantage and disadvantage groups would then widen as individuals age. Now, an example of study, I, there is no work that's been done specifically on food insecurity and obesity from an accumulative equality uh, experience, uh, perspective, but there is this study that Katrina Walsman led uh, with a group of us here where she used the, the National NLSY, National Longitudinal Study of Youth, which has a long-term follow-up every year for a while, and that was every two years, to be able to look at, at this question. So this graph shows on the y-axis is um, body mass index, and on the x-axis is age going from about age 16, which is when you could start tracking this, um, up to age 44. And what it's simply showing is what are the trajectories for the three predominant ethnic groups in the United States. So whites, which is on the bottom, uh, blacks, which is on the top, and then Hispanics, which are in between. Okay? So you can see that body, body mass index goes up as we age. Of course, this early period part of this is developmental, um, but even beyond that, it tends to, to increase. But we see these really quite marked um, differences, disparities between the ethnic groups. All right, so that's background. Now, she was interested in what's the relationship then of the respondent schooling Right? We would think that uh, low schooling would be, would be a, a form of social disadvantage. So what's the effect of the respondent schooling on this? And you can see that, okay, so what we have is the open ones are uh, 10 years of schooling and then the filled-in 
dots are, the darker ones are 16 years of schooling. And so we can see within each of the ethnic groups that the open ones are above, above the others. So in other words, those that had only 10 years of schooling completed had a higher body mass index for each of the three ethnic groups. We see a separation um, within each of the three ethnic groups. So, um, so disadvantage in the terms of less schooling uh, is related to higher BMI. All right, then further, she wanted to look at the education not of the respondents but of the mothers. The idea being that this is a way to test if there's been cumulative inequality or cumulative disadvantage going on because the mother schooling, of course, of course occurred much earlier uh, even before the child was born, the respondent was born. And what you can see here is the same pattern as in the previous graph, only the separations are much larger. So within each of the ethnic groups, you see a separation between 10 years of schooling and 16 years of schooling that's even wider than what we saw before. And now some of those differences are on, on par with some of the differences that we're seeing between the ethnic groups. Okay. So in the paper, it's, it's talked about as this being evidence that, that education clearly is a disadvantage relative to this health outcome. But the earlier that occurred, the more the disadvantage is. So we don't have any data like this related to food insecurity. So what do we know about food insecurity? So this is a graph uh, figure from the National Research Council report that was completed in 2006. It, the task of the panel was to review uh, this, the situation with regard to food insecurity in the U.S. and particularly its measurement. And there was an opportunity to help reframe how we thought about this. Um, many of the panel members didn't know anything about food insecurity, so those of us who did were sort of responsible for trying to bring along the rest of the group in terms of understanding what does the literature tell us. Now, the, the, the fact that we even pay attention to food insecurity in the United States resulted from the 1990 legislation that established the National Food Nutrition Monitoring System. And the conceptual work that was done at that time said that we're interested in food insecurity up here because there's a pathway through dietary intake and nutritional status to affecting well-being. So it was cast uh, solely in terms of a nutritional pathway. Now, what we've learned since then is that there are other important pathways to well-being besides a nutritional pathway. These non-nutritional pathways operate through the, the um, experience of of being hungry itself, uh, having uh, distress and adverse family and social interactions, the worry and anxiety that comes when your food supply is not certain, and the feelings of deprivation and alienation that you experience because you know that one of the fundamental life needs is uncertain in, in, your, in your life. Um, and so you feel deprived, you feel like you have com compromised choices, and you feel alienated, different from others um, because of that. And we now, we have a lot of evidence that food insecurity is related to quite a number of uh, outcomes that together might constitute well-being. And there's actually very limited evidence to tell us which of these pathways are important. Only a little bit of evidence. Um, most of what we know about this, and the reason we can draw this with confidence is because of the, the, the relatively few but nevertheless really important qualitative studies that have been done. All right, here's some recent work. Uh, Tatia Martinez came uh, and spent a couple of weeks with us last summer from Costa Rica. She did a study in, in Costa Rica where she was interested in trying to understand from women who were already overweight and obese, um, who were also at risk of, of being food insecure, 
try to understand the relationship by talking to them about sort of what's going on in their life. And, and this is the conceptual figure that emerged from that. So we have here excess weight. All of the women had excess weight. Most of them were food insecure, not all. And you can see that the nexus of this that emerged from her qualitative work was being discouraged, that women felt discouraged about their life. They felt discouraged about being overweight. They didn't like it. They didn't feel like they could do anything about it. They knew it wasn't good for them. Others didn't, uh, didn't other ostracized them, um, and so they were discouraged about it. And without going to all the boxes and arrows, there's an, these are the things that emerged uh, in the top left, um, preferences for, for cheap food that tastes good and produce satiety so they can uh, preserve as much of their food budget as possible, uh, worries and concerns, um, their, their concern about uh, the consequences of excess weight, lack of motivation that they felt to cook in a healthy way, um, very closely tied to discouragement was shame and guilt, which came from, in part, their consumption of foods that they knew were really not high-quality foods for them. That, in turn, came, this is sort of circular, because of their, the agitation or disquiet that, that they felt because they were discouraged because of the constraints that were in their life. This, this is a figure from a very important paper from that Samarov published now about three years ago that is an attempt to integrate together life course uh, and cumulative equality perspectives with development and also with social ecological perspective. Uh, so here we can see most easily the social ecological model, the idea that we're, here we're focusing on children, we're going to be focusing on children, that children are in the middle of that, that they live in a context of the household or family, which in turn is in the context of their neighborhood and community, et cetera. So we have these outer layers. So that's represented in the figure. Um, what al what's also represented is that when a child is very young in infancy, the child's world is actually pretty narrow. It's the world that's, that's defined usually by their immediate family or extended family. But then as the child ages, as we move from left to right, the, the parts of the social ecological model that are relevant to them starts expanding because they are more and more engaged in, in the world beyond the family. And so we should expect that the influences on self are, are expanding. But also we have developmental forces going on from infancy to childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, and the cumulative effect or the incident effect of whatever is happening during the life course. It's a very important paper. I encourage you to, to look it up and read it. Okay, here's, so the Samaroff model tries to bring into our thinking a development perspective as well as the social ecological and life course perspective. So this is um, the, a picture of, what is this? This is girls, uh, 2 to 20 years old in terms of body mass index. This is either the CDC growth charts, the, the WHO growth charts look similar. And one of the things I wanted to point out is, is the inadequacy of body mass index I would argue the virtual uselessness of body mass index to tell us about obesity in children. So this is a little bit of a side box, but it's an important one. We know that out here at, say, 20 years of age or older, that in a cross-sectional study that in the normal population, that people who have higher body mass index are more likely to be obese in the sense of having more excess fat. But if we look developmentally, or even from a life course perspective through childhood, that doesn't apply anything 
like that. And in fact, one could argue that if we take any cross-sections in here, that having a body, higher body mass index does not necessarily mean greater fatness at all. For example, this period right here, where we see it start to go up at around ages 5, 6, or 7, has long been called uh, the adiposity rebound. We now know from one study, we now know, although uh, Ricardo Huawei in, in Spain uh, recently presented some data which, which uh, confirms this, it's not published yet, that in fact this rebound, this, this going up of BMI, is in fact has nothing to do with adiposity at all. It has nothing to do with fat. It's all about accumulation of lean tissue. So here, if we think that children who are increasing faster than, say, other children means that they're fatter, it probably doesn't mean that at all. It probably means they're accruing more muscle tissue and bone growth, which is the lean side. And so BMI in children is not necessarily at all a good measure of fatness, which is what we care, we care about in terms of chronic disease prevention. So what do we know about children? So this is the same picture, more or less, that I showed before, but now sort of recast for what we know about children. First of all, in the blue, um, recent work that's been done here and by uh, Jenny Bernal in, in Venezuela has showed us that children, the, although for a long time we've thought, we've, it's been asserted that, and, and this was really triggered by the very first qualitative work that was done with women in the United States, we've asserted that parents are pretty successful protecting their children from, from food insecurity. We now know that that is not true at all. That children are cognitively, emotionally, and physically aware of food insecurity, this side, and that they take responsibility for managing food resources. They participate in strategies that adults initiate, they initiate their own strategies, and they do things to generate resources. And very often, children are doing those things without telling their parents. So we have a dietary pathway here as before, but some other pathways we think are probably operating go through physical activity to health status, uh, behavior and social interactions, social skills and mental health status, and attentiveness and cognitive focus, cognitive and academic development. We actually have a lot of quantitative data to tell us that food insecurity in children living in households that are food insecure is strongly related to things like school performance or behavior problems in schools, having adverse social interactions, being more likely to have to go to school psychologists, those kinds of things. Now, some recent work, we've been collaborating with a group in California that, that was doing a, a randomized, um, they were doing a randomized study. We're not using the randomized component, but we were able to add some questions to their endline survey uh, of about 3,600 infants, uh, of children, fourth graders, fourth graders. And from this, we have the first data that, that looks at when children report being food insecure, what happens in terms of diet and then in terms of physical activity. So in this sample, that those children who reported more food insecurity in the, in the six subdomains I just talked about, of, of three of awareness and three of taking responsibility, that they report higher energy intake, higher sugar intake, higher fiber intake, and lower vegetable intake. These are all significant relationships. And they also report, and as far as I know, these are the only data we have tying food insecurity to physical activity at all. If somebody knows of other data, let me know. Uh, that, that food insecurity is related to lower reported minutes, 
less preference for doing physical activity, and greater perception of being tired and, and having weight as, as barriers. So, so here we see direct evidence from children from their own report about a relationship to sort of both sides of what we think the energy balance equation is for obesity. Also, Jennifer did some work as part of her dissertation that looked at the consequences of food insecurity for the pattern of activities that children engage in sort of on a daily basis. And what she found is the following. So there's a list of activities there, and this is a, measure, this is a, this is a quantitative data on 131 um, children. And, and this is showing a measure of food insecurity and also a measure of their participation in strategies to try to alleviate food insecurity. And by the way, when she did this analysis with mother's report, there was no relationship at all with any of these activities. So we only see it when we ask the children directly. And so the pluses mean there's a positive relationship. So, uh, so children who are food insecure are more likely to be involved in raising crops, to be doing food shopping, to be doing uh, passive chores, to, to being the one who's cooking at home, to be taking care of uh, other siblings, and to be out in the labor force. And then, so those are all kind of related to work in some sense. Uh, there was no relationship with play during school or doing sports in or out of school. Uh, it, food insecurity was positively related to TV watching, so the children who were more food insecure watched more TV and therefore probably were less active in that sense. Um, they were less likely to play video games. They were more likely to take naps. They were much more likely to be absent from school. And which is not a surprising finding. The, whole, the justification for school feeding throughout the world primarily historically has been to prevent school absenteeism. So that's not a surprising finding. And we also have evidence that, that uh, children who are food insecure are more stunted, which is a different set of issues. Okay, so here's, here's some reflections about what we've learned about children's food insecurity, which is only very recently. The first study that was done of ch child food insecurity was done in 2005 by Carol Connell in Mississippi. Um, and I think the work that we've done and Jennifer has done has, has really deepened that, that work a lot. So this is all pretty recent. So first of all, that, that children do experience food insecurity, uh, that there's this myth that parents are trying to protect children from food insecurity. Parents do try to protect uh, children from food insecurity, but they often do not succeed. And the myth is that they are actually are succeeding. We know that children try to protect their parents and siblings. We've seen in our qualitative work uh, that children talk about this overtly. They talk about that, yes, I'm doing that. I'm not eating as much to save food for my younger sibling because I know it's important that they eat. And I don't tell my parents I'm doing that because I know they would feel bad if they knew I was doing that. Because it's important to them that they feel like they're protecting us. And they've, so these are the kinds of things we hear in our narrative. Parents have many goals for children and have to make trade-offs among them. So we have quite a bit of information from uh, some work that we've done related to food insecurity, also some work that Christine uh, has collaborated on with Mariah Fram, looking at, at parenting's goals and strategies, that parents have many goals for their children, and oftentimes those goals are in conflict. So if, for example, the only way you can have your child feel normal, like they're every other child, 
when you're poor and food insecure is to bring them to a fast food restaurant, even though you know that that's not particularly great food for them, you're going to do that because that's the cheapest way you have to have to help, help them feel normal. So that's a trade-off of goals. We know that food insecurity is bad for children. We've known that since the late um, 90s. Uh, Catherine Alimo's dissertation uh, in particular really established uh, strongly that food insecurity had strong, pervasive, detrimental effects for children. So we know that. Um, and, and we think that child food insecurity may have long-term effects. Everything we know about the kinds of things I've been talking about suggests that these ought to project into the future, that the effects of this should be persistent. Okay, and the last bullet is that we do need more longitudinal uh, and qualitative studies. The, the work that Diana Giotti did with Sonia and I, uh, for her master's thesis, uh, used the early childhood longitudinal study and provided very important data that's longitudinal and therefore more convincing to policymakers about effects, for example, of food insecurity on reading and mathematic performance. So we need more longitudinal studies, but I would argue that thoughtful cross-section studies are still useful. So let me give you a couple of examples of that. Um, okay, so, sorry, I forgot to mention. So I've listed here some of the goals that that um, I was thinking about. Okay, so this is a study that, that was published um, in the Br uh, Brazilian Public Health Journal uh, last May, I think it was. And so what this study did was, it, it's a cross-sectional study, but it tried to at least think from a life course perspective. And so there was a study of children, of adolescent girls, and then adult women. And they classified food insecurity into mild, moderate, and severe as compared against food secure. And what this is showing is prevalence ratios or risk ratios compared to the food secure. And so what you can see here is that there was no relationship um, among children, although this risk ratio is pretty high. It wasn't significant because there's relatively few children in that group. But uh, this odds ratio is about two, so there was statistical evidence that among adolescent girls that being in the severe food insecure group meant you were twice as likely um, to be obese. And among adult women, that there was no relationship in that group, but that there was a relationship in the moderate group. Okay. So this is an attempt, at least, to look at different cross-sections of the life course and to think about what's going on at that point. This is um, a, a study that Jeff Ler Leroy and colleagues are, are just submitting, I think. And... So these are some data from Mexico. What it's looking at is this is a measure of household wealth going from low to high. And then this is uh, adult, this is adjusted weight in, uh, of women in, in kilograms. And this is looking at uh, what's the relationship between poverty status or wealth and uh, weight status depending upon your education. So it's contrasting two, two different groups groups that completed primary education or higher, so that's up to about eighth grade, versus group, another group that didn't complete primary education. And you can see that the relationship between weight and wealth is, is rather different, that in the group where they completed a higher education, higher than primary or higher, that there's no relationship there. It's the group that had a social disadvantages captured by education where we see the relationship. So again, I think this is insightful, even though these are cross-sectional data, and helping us understand how some of these things work together. 
Okay, so here's, here's some reflections. We know that economic and social disadvantage cause both food insecurity and obesity. I think that should be taken as a given. Everything we know about what it means to have economic and social disadvantage and all the data that we have tell us that that's the case. It doesn't mean that things don't flow in the opposite direction, but we do know that social disadvantage causes both of those things. The coexistence of food insecurity and obesity is a paradox, is a myth. And, and I want to argue very strongly that the worst culprits in this are us. It's scientists who keep talking about this as a paradox. I don't know why. I think it's because, I don't know, it makes it more exciting or somehow it's, you know, it's like a detective story we have to uncover, right? We have to stop doing that. There is no paradox because we know that families that are socially disadvantaged are going to be worse in every outcome we can imagine. Welcome to South Carolina. We exhibit that here. Therefore, it's not really important to know if food insecurity causes obesity in a contemporaneous way. That's not a useful question. We need to stop spending time trying to answer that question because it's not helpful to answer that question. We already know that the way to think about it is it's being caused by the underlying disadvantage. And then finally, that both food insecurity and obesity are consequences of disadvantage that should be prevented. I think we would all agree with that. That's what our aim would be, that at the same time, we want to prevent families from having to worry about not enough food. We also want to prevent them from having health consequences that might be in somehow associated with that. But in their own right, obesity is a bad thing for people to have. The main policy concern in the United States, but the same is true in Chile, in Brazil, in many other countries, is for this relationship is that it has to do with food assistance. We have so social safety net programs and food assistance programs because historically we've been concerned about people not having enough food. That's how the food stamp program in the United States started. In the early 60s, there were reports that were well publicized about malnutrition, particularly in the Deep South. And the motivation was to then test out in states uh, the first food stamp program, I think, was in Massachusetts, which is sort of ironic relative to Obamacare, same thing, right? And, and it was seen as beneficial, and it started spring to other states, and then in the late 60s, early 70s, became a national program. That was all motivated by trying to prevent inadequate supply of food. We're in a different era now where we're worried about that, but we're also worried about obesity. And so the main policy concern is that this relationship seems to say to some people that food assistance isn't needed and that it makes the problem worse. So, for example, as articulated in that IOM report that I mentioned before, the, if you read the report, and I encourage you to, to, to read the report, it's available from the National Academy website for free, called Hunger and Obesity, and it's uh, the planning group, I was part of the planning group, the planning group did a fantastic job collectively of bringing in just people from all different disciplines to deal with, to think about this issue. And so there's a lot of really interesting material in there. Um, one of the most interesting parts is near the end, the f people from the Food Nutrition Service commented about why this issue is important. And they cited three things. 
First, there's a vocal segment of policymakers and the public who cannot fathom how it's possible for people to be both poor and obese. That's where the title of my talk came from, is directly from that. That's what they talk about. They are constantly bombarded in terms of defending the food assistance programs because people ask, how is it possible for both of these to happen? Why do they need additional food and nutrition assistance if they're already obese and therefore clearly have enough food? The second point is that they recognize that the government has an obligation to demonstrate good stewardship of tax dollars. You know, it's always about effectiveness and about accountability. So this is the accountability part. The third point is that USDA itself recognizes that its mission has to be shifting from a focus solely on hunger to the broader issues of how what its programming efforts do, policy efforts do, is, is contributing in a positive way towards uh, healthful diets and making good food, have, helping people make good food choices. So I think that's the policy context in which, if we're doing research related to these issues, we should be prioritizing in terms of trying to move forward. So here's what I think some, and then I'm going to throw it open for discussion, what priority questions might be. First of all, what are the consequences of child experiences of food insecurity and the effects that it exerts in childhood for later well-being in terms of food, economic, physical, including obesity, mental health, but a broad spectrum of possible outcomes? In other words, we know that children experience food insecurity in very profound ways. We think that's important not only for what happens to them in childhood, but as we project that forward into adulthood. We need to understand all of that better. The second point is we need to know why and how these occur. What are the mediators? What are the modifiers of this? We need to understand whether the effects of child experiences of food insecurity are cumulative. Why do we see food insecurity and poverty persistently associated with obesity, but only for women but not men? I don't think that necessarily by itself is an important question, although it might be, but it's more because if we try to answer that question, we're going to learn a lot. And then the final is, how can food assistance prevent both food insecurity and its consequences, including obesity? In other words, how can we learn about how to make modifications to the way in which we're providing assistance, whether it's through something like the food stamp program, which is an unconditional program, or in other places where people are doing conditional programs of various kinds, we still see the same problems. How do we go about improving the way we do social programming so that we're contributing to good health. So, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I'm thinking about the other question about the racial differences. Because earlier you showed the last month's study, you see that, you know, uh, big racial differences with early exposure of the childhood insecurity mm -hmm. with the DNA. So right. Why white is doing much better than you know black and Okay. I guess I would say if if asking to me that's a question like this one. If we ask that question, it's gonna be a way to get some insight about the other questions. Use child experiences of 
food insecurity and look at the impact of food assistance? Not to my knowledge. I mean, the only... We, we, have, we have in the Haines survey, for example, Carol Connell's work in, in Mississippi was to... She did some, some qualitative work. Uh, I, I would say the work that we did and Jennifer has done in Venezuela has, has gone more in-depth with children. I think the way Carol approached it was a really important first step. But, but, but she, for example, she asked... She was reluctant to ask children about their own experiences. So she asked children about what they saw in other children's experiences. That's useful, but you also lose a lot from not uncovering what a child is experiencing because they can talk in more depth, obviously, about their own experience. So nevertheless, so in one piece of work she did that, and in another piece of work she adapted the, the adult questions for children. And so those are now available in some of the surveys. The, the, the challenge is that we don't think everything that we've learned tells us that's not really tapping into children's experiences adequately. And since, uh, I mean, the paper that we published uh, with the validation of the, the items that we've developed, you know, just came out a few months ago, and, you know, I think people will start picking it up like we were able to incorporate in this survey in California. Christine? I really like Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's not me thinking about what exactly food assistance is doing. Food assistance is only focusing on the food aspect of that disadvantage without attending or, or being um, sensitive to the context of social and economic disadvantage that clearly is going to have um, unpredictable outcomes. Maybe negative outcomes, maybe positive, but unpredictable outcomes if it's not designed in a way that is sensitive to social and economic disadvantage. And the other thing that really moved my thinking forward was to address issues of obesity and food insecurity, food assistance itself isn't the solution. What would social and economic not advantage, not disadvantage, what, what would that look like? What would we say? I, mean, I guess we, we talk so much about the negative. Oh, there's food insecurity. Oh, there's you know economic disadvantage. There's social disadvantage. What is that? You know, how would we characterize economic and social disadvantage? And not just education. But I think education, as that one slide illustrated, is not enough in and of itself. That's, that's another potential outcome. So, number one, how do we even characterize social and economic disadvantage as it relates to food security and obesity? And number two, um, what should we be doing? No, I, I think those are both both good points. Uh, on on this on the this, the on the one about the labeling of the programs, it's interesting. That USDA has moved away from you will they, the reason why the food stamp program name got changed to the supplemental food no supplemental nutritional assistance program. It's because the, it's because of the this bullet, basically here. It's a way of them communicating a change in focus. Right, so they, they they intentionally changed the name because of that for this for this very reason. When 
when some of us have gone and had a chance to talk with them, we've tried to encourage, hasn't gotten much traction for, for, for I think, legitimate reasons, encourage them thinking about it's family assistance. You know, it's, it's you're giving money uh, that can only be spent on food, but we know what happens about 30 cents on a dollar goes to food, and, and what it does is frees up other fungible money, right? So it, it's really providing family assistance. The trouble is USA doesn't have a mandate to provide family assistance. They have a mandate to provide nutrition assistance. So that's, that's you know, where they're focusing. But I think, I mean, part of what you're saying, I, I think, is that we need to think about families holistically. And, and in, in, in the end, what, what the food stamp program is doing, or SNAP is doing, is what in other countries would be overtly called you know, providing cash assistance to families, except that we don't like that in this country, so we don't want to call it that. The other issue about about characterizing disadvantage, you know, again, I would I would say I I really wish we would look to other places to learn about how other places are dealing with these issues because, especially in Latin America, there's a lot more holistic thinking going on about the nature of social disadvantage and and how all of that works together. I, I'm not saying that necessarily they're dealing with things in a better or worse policy solution sense than we are, but at least the way they think about the problem. I mean, in Costa Rica, the, the thinking about is so sophisticated about, about those issues that you raised. And, and we tend to be very narrow here. We're, we're very much caught up in a, a narrative of, of poverty, and that's why, that's why um, this top bullet, why does that happen? It's because the predominant narrative about poverty in this country is that it's all about individual choices. It's it's a it's a you know we're we're an exceptional country right where exceptionalism's high, feelings of exceptionalism and one of the reasons why we're exceptional is because everybody can can achieve whatever they want they just have to pick themselves up and do it, right? So if you're poor, it's because you chose to be that way and it's, so we have this narrative that that uh, doesn't exist nearly as strongly in other places. Sure. You know, I think uh, similarly about the contextual whole of the family and how do you disentangle at a child level the unique impacts of food insecurity. Um, I'm going back to the slide that you showed about the obese women and from the qualitative data, their experiences. And you're describing someone who's basically depressed. And so what children will do in a family context with a mother who's experiencing depressed affect um, could be very similar to what they could do. They're gonna try to solve a lot of family problems, not just the food insecurity problem. Um, and, and so I really think about the measurement of a wide variety of family contextual variables to help the need to do that in order to understand what the unique contribution is. Um, and that could lead to ideas about you know, future or additional no, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think in many ways food insecurity is important in its own right, of course, but it's also a marker for, in a, in a way of tapping into those larger issues. It's indicative, not, it's not itself just the problem, but it's indicative of the larger set of family issues right, that are going on. No, exactly. Um, if that contributed to PTSD um, as an experience and 
then they're hoping it's a term to food um, as a way to self-medicate and then they never looked into that kind of like these funny type of things. But then turns on this into it can even turn into some type of food addiction even at the most extreme. Right. Well the yeah, the, like one study I mentioned talked about, well, they cast it in terms of food reinforcement, but that's in essence what they were talking about is, is food playing a role in, um, in sort of making us feel better. And, and that emerged very strongly from Tatiana's work in Costa Rica. I'm wondering about these relationships between um, the food insecurity in immigrant families, if you're aware of any literature on that, just because the immigrant families are experiencing so many additional stressors, which could exacerbate you know, these relationships and then, um, you know, in addition to discrimination, racism, deportation, and not being eligible for certain programs depending on their documentation status. Right. There's been, uh, well, Jihong led up some work that we did here related to that. She can talk about that if she likes. There's been Joe Sharkey in uh, Texas has been doing some work with Mexican-American, you know, border families. There's, there was some work done some years ago now in Hartford, Connecticut, among the Hispanic population. There's some very nice, very nice work. Um, I think that, that, uh, in Hartford, for example, it was very clear that that families there not only were poor and disadvantaged in in a sort of household family sense, but were in an environment that put them at disadvantage. They had poor access to health care. They were sort of ostracized in, in many ways. And, and the, the Hartford Hispanic Health Council emerged as a way of dealing dealing with those sort of structural societal issues. Yeah. Other questions or comments? I have a, well, a question, a hypothetical. Um, I'm wondering about um, child um, food insecurity leading to perceived success. There's a misconception that um, what one lacks in childhood, they make up for in adulthood, potentially. Right. And that could lead to poor food choices later. But just the idea that being able to consume food, if you do ideally make it out of that um, state, sure. could result in that type of um, attitude. And I, I don't know that child um, food insecurity could be an idea or could be something that could be targeted. Individually, it seems like with this dynamic, there would be several areas that would have to be addressed all at once, you know, socioeconomic status in addition to um, the obvious food insecurity that is being, that is resulting from that. Um, but the idea that these children are very, very aware of that insecure status, I'm wondering if that's something that would have to be addressed as well. If feasibly it could even be addressed. Well, I think it has to be addressed. I mean, I didn't, the, the, the data I showed from Jenny's dissertation um, on altered activities, I mean, Jenny is absolutely convinced that although we don't have the data to, to link this, in fact, she's writing a proposal now for us to do some further work to, to try to see if those are linked, but, but we think that the, one of the main explanations for why children's performance in school with in the face of food insecurity is poor is because 
they're literally spending time on activities that are taking them away from what they should be doing if they're a child, uh, you know, for investing in their development. So there's those immediate impacts. And then, as you said, there's every reason to think from what we know about poverty, even our own in anecdotal experiences. Um, I'm sure there's several people in this room who grew up close enough to poverty, if not in poverty, to know that that what one experiences early on, you know, affects the way you think about choices later, and so there's no question that there's going to be relationships there. All right. Anybody want the last word? I think that just opens up the door to think about models of resiliency as well as models of risk mm -hmm. in the context of this problem. Um, in that maybe a slightly different way to think about. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in, the, in the global literature around food insecurity, it's not been in the discourse in the United States much at all. Uh, resiliency, vulnerability, and, and sort of the complement of that resiliency in the face of vulnerability uh, has, has been something that's talked about a lot, but there's really very little work done on it, on what, what matters in terms of resiliency. Can you promote resiliency? Um, so, yeah, I agree. Okay, thanks.